If you have your scriptures, you can turn to Amos chapter 4. Lord willing, we will be able to get through all four, I mean, all, all of chapter 4 this week. I will try to keep it a little shorter than the last two weeks because my voice is failing. Um, I think I just have a cold, but we'll try to get through it this morning. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, help us this morning. We need you. We are prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God we love. We are, in many ways, just like the Israelites we are studying in the book of Amos. Um, we hang our head in that reality. And we find ourselves wandering the way we wander, as Andrew talked about in the confession, because we have values other things. It is the theme of humanity over the ages. We ask you that your spirit would work in us to draw us close. Reveal to us the things that have distracted us. Reveal to us the things that have caused us to think that we are being faithful and we are not. Reveal the things to us that we have been deceived by and deceived ourselves by. Help us to see you. And help us this morning in our study that we'll see you here. In your name I pray. Amen. As we get into Amos chapter 4, a couple things I need to say real briefly. Probably, first of all, I was sharing this with several people before the service started this morning. Amos chapter 4 is probably the most politically incorrect chapter of the entire scriptures. It is a passage you probably will never hear preached anywhere because of that, um, especially in our age today. Uh, it is um, very uncomfortable, not just in the normal ways uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable in the climate we are in today even. Um, and in some ways it reminds me that the truth of God is offensive. If I may just throw this out here as a freebie before we get started. The truth of God is offensive. And I find too often... Christians fall into one of two camps. Again, this is just a freebie. Either we don't want to offend anybody, and so we never speak truth, we don't proclaim truth, or we kind of get a sick joy out of offending people, and it's not for God's glory. But at the same time, one of the things we have to recognize is God, as well as his spokespeople, are people who very strongly speak the truth at the risk of offending people. And it happens over and over again in the scriptures. Nowhere more prominently than when we get in our text today. Um, be that as it may, um, it is an interesting study in Amos chapter 4 as we come to the next, the second proclamation, the major proclamation in the book of, uh, of Amos. Um, it's very painful. I think if you've been here, you've noticed it. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Very painful book. Chapter 4 is equally painful, if not more so. As a matter of fact, I would argue it's even more so. So it's real important that we hear what God has to say, but we must not try to water down the message of the chapter. We must not. We must instead magnify it to its appropriate perspective. And that's exactly what Amos is doing here. Um, and so it's very uncomfortable in a variety of ways. Uh, so let's just work our way through it. Let's read it first, and then we'll talk about it as, as we wander through the text. He starts out again in his second major proclamation. Hear the word, I'm sorry, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, 
who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with, uh, with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead. And you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilead, or I'm sorry, to Gilgal, and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened. And proclaim free will offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do. O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain to another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water that would not be satisfied. Yet, you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locust devoured. Yet, you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with sword and carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp to go up into your nostrils. Yet, you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Out of the burning. Yet, you did not return to me declares the Lord. Therefore, thus will I do, I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord God of hosts. That's our text this morning. Painful text. As a matter of fact, it's not a very hopeful text. Although some have tried to find hope in the text, there really is no hope in this text. So let's start just wandering through and let's talk about it. He starts out like he started out verse chapter 3. Hear this word. After that, the text changes. He singles out a group of people. And when he singles them out, we are introduced to that great politically incorrect statement today. You cows of Bashan. Now, please understand, when he says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, he's talking about the women of Bashan. Get the idea? It's pretty politically incorrect today. Now, before we move beyond this, we need to understand what he means before he lays out his specifics, when he, why he chooses the cows of Bashan to describe these women. 
It is interesting. Firstly, and I don't think he's describing the, the women that live in the area of Bashan according to their size. That being said, the women, I'm sorry, the cows of Bashan were very large. They were larger than normal cows. And the reason why they were larger than normal cows in, in Israel is because the hills around Bashan were incredibly fertile. And so the result is the cows would grow very large because they had so much to eat. But at the same time, they were known to be very unruly cattle. They were always breaking through the barriers and wandering around. They were famously, uh, uh, um, they were famous for goring people and other livestock. Uh, they were uh, basically out of control. So when Amos chooses the women of Bashan and describes them as the cows of Bashan, he's trying to make a really significant point. By the way, the other thing we need to know about Bashan area is a very rich area. It was um, uh, a place of wealth, a place of comfort, a place of ease. Um, it was uh, famous in that era for that. So Hosea singles them out and he says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Who are on the mountains of Samaria, the mountain of Samaria, who are, and then we're told what they are all about. What does it say? Who oppress the poor and crush the needy. Now the point here that he's trying to make is this. The reason why there's so much wealth here, the reason why there is so much with these women of Bashan, and the idea is their families. The reason why there's so much wealth centered in this area is because they are using other covenant people to gain their wealth. They are, they are using and abusing other people. It's a theme we've seen, but it's covenant people. There's not love, covenant love, caring love. Merciful love, love that is reflective, and it's importantly his love that is reflective, mercy that is reflective, grace that is reflective from one person to the other of God's love, mercy, grace that is pouring out to them because they're in the covenant. It, God's love and mercy and grace is not, in other words, being reflected outwards horizontally to other people. In other words, these cows of Bashan, these women of Bashan, are people who are enjoying God's grace. They're appreciating at some level God's mercy. They are expecting and living in God's love towards them. But the effect of it all is an actual, we would never, they would never use these words, but it's an actual hatred of others that are in the covenants who are less fortunate. Now, one would ask at this point in time, if they're thinking at all, why is Amos singling out the women? It's a patriarchal society, not a matriarchal society, correct? In other words, it's a male-driven society, isn't it? Yeah, why is he singling out the women? Because what has happened is in, in this story, in this time frame, in Bashan, the women are actually running and controlling the thing. 
The women are actually, the wives are actually controlling their husbands. Did you pick it up? Here's what he says. Hear the word, this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say, what? To their husbands, bring, that we may drink. You hear the women commanding the men there? It's backwards from the way it was supposed to be in, in the Hebrew law. Now, it's interesting when, he, when, when Amos says, the end of verse 1, bring that we may drink. It's actually got several layers going on here. On one level, it is literally bring that we may drink. But dr bring that we may drink what? Well, the answer is obvious. If you think it through in Old Testament history, what would they be drinking? Wine. Maybe drinking wine. They would actually probably be drinking beer as well. But that's a whole other issue we won't get into today. Who made the wine? Think it through. Who would have made the wine? No, not the husbands. No, not the women. The poor, the slaved, the oppressed. So on a physical level... The women are demanding, the husbands are relenting and bringing to them what they can get to appease and satisfy their wives from the poor and the oppressed. But the, it, it, interestingly enough, Amos is actually playing off of that, and it's not just a physical thing. In effect, what God is saying is this. Who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink, is, an, is more of a metaphorical thing. If you are stealing from and oppressing the other people, in effect, it's as if these women of Bashan are saying, bring me, not literally, but you get the picture, bring me these oppressed that I may drink of them. Of their very lives. Because I'm sucking the very life. They are crushing the grape that I may drink under oppression. And it's as if these oppressed and poor are actually the grape. And they're drinking of their lives. Now, what's going on here? Well, this is just a review of previous weeks. I want to remind you. The people who lived in, in the Bashan area were people of the covenant. The people who were living in, they were rich, are people of the covenant. The people who are poor and oppressed are people of the covenant. They're of the exact same covenant. The people who are rich are able to gain their riches by oppressing other covenant people and in so doing are saying, in effect, that they don't deserve to be part of the covenant. They deserve merely to serve those who are of the covenant. When the reality is, according to the covenant, who's supposed to serve who? And even more in-depth than that, and more basic than that, all are to serve God. They all exist for what purpose? To glorify God. To serve God and glorify God. They totally forgot it. The point that Amos is trying to make here with these women of Bashan is this. The people, I'm going back to it again because Amos does not leave it. So I'm not leaving it either because it's such a prevalent problem then and today. 
is that you have people who claim to be followers of God, claim to be people of the covenant, and yet they're they're doing the the religious rituals and religious rites we've talked about in the past, but they're they are not loving God. They're not enthralled with the God of the covenant. They're not moved. It was what Andrew was talking about this morning in the, in the in the confession. We're not moved by other things. We're moved by other things versus being moved by God. What are the cows of Bashan being moved by? God? Their appetites, their cravings, their status, their comfort, their ease. Does any of that sound familiar in our world today? And I'm not talking about the secular world. Talk about the Christian world. Does any of that sound familiar? If it doesn't, then you're blind. <coughs> Verse 2. He goes on and says, The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you. Now Amos is beginning to prophesy about the future to these cows of Bashan, these women of Bashan. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Interesting prophecy. You know what God's saying? To his covenant people, he said, you think you can live this way? Throwing me scraps, in effect, right? Throwing scraps to me and being after your own kingdom as you are and stepping over everybody to get what you want for you? You think you can live that way? He says the, to, the, to these women of, of uh, Bashan, he says, hear, hear the word of the Lord. And he says, did you notice? He says, God has spoken by his what? That's an important phrase. In other words, what God is saying through Amos is, my holiness is on the line. If I don't respond to this, I'm not holy. That's what he's saying. When he says God is responding to his holiness, He's saying, if I'm holy, I must deal with that. I cannot allow it to continue. You see, one of the problems in, in the Old Testament, we find it over and over and over again, this idea that the people of Israel really didn't think that God would judge them. They didn't think he would. <clears throat> If he's holy, he must. And we think this side of Christ's death and resurrection in this already not yet time frame, we think so often the exact same thing. We think, I'm forgiven. Christ is my redeemer. I'm heaven bound. Yeah, I still sin. He's not going to judge. Really? 
Do you really think that? Maybe we ought to read Jude. Maybe we ought to read Second Peter. It's shocking what God says. Hebrews chapter 12, if we're truly his. Hebrews 12. And we go on and on throughout the New Testament. We go to examples. Can anybody say Ananias and Sapphira? For example. We're doing something much less significant, most likely, than any of us have done in this last week. The Lord has sworn, sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you, this prophecy. What days are coming upon them? He says to these women of Bashan, they, and we know from history, he's talking about the Assyrians. The Assyrians, and we know from the biblical account as well, the Assyrians are going to come and take you people who have oppressed my covenant people. who have not lived covenant loyalty towards other believers. They're coming, and they shall take you away with hooks. What that means is they're going to stick hooks into your flesh. Even the last of you with fish hooks. Now, has anybody here ever had a fish hook in them? It hurts, doesn't it? You can't get it out. It's hard. Painful. He's not talking about the kind of fish hooks you know about. He's talking about big fish hooks. And the picture is they're going to haul you away. They're going to drag you away. You may be kicking and screaming. You're being drawn away. You're being drawn, the picture is you're being drawn out of the city. The breaches that are being talked about in verse 3, you shall go out through the breaches, is breaches in the wall. The walls are going to be utterly breached everywhere. And you shall go out through the breaches, and, you, and by the way, it's really interesting how Amos describes the, the destruction. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead. What do you think that means, each one straight ahead? When you walk, there's a hole. Everywhere you walk, you're absolutely correct. Everywhere you walk, there's a hole in the wall. This is not going to be one stinking little breach and you're all going to have to be drugged through it. It's basically the walls are gone. The destruction is complete. All because they're sin. And then he wraps up verse 3 saying, and you should be cast out into Harmon. There's debate of what Harmon is. Uh, some people think it's actually uh, Mount Hermon. Most likely it is not. Harbon is most likely a place of death. When he says, you shall be cast out into Harmon, you'll be dragged away with fish hooks, and you'll be taken to your death, declares the Lord. You are going to die. Prophecy is over at this point. The future prophecy, verse 3, it's over. He goes on to verse 4. He says, come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Interesting passage, 4 and 5. Come to Bethel. Bethel means what again? House of God. House of God. And it's the main place of worship in the north. Come to Bethel and what? Transgress. 
to Gilgal. Anybody know what Gilgal is all about? What is Gilgal famous for? Anybody remember? Looking at my verse there at the bottom, centers of syncretistic worship during the period of the divided day. It is that, but what else is it really famous for? It's one of the places that marked where they first entered into the land. Remember they built they built remembrance rocks? Yes. And in the divided kingdom era, it was still a place where they would go and see the rocks and be reminded of their entry into the land. Come to Bethel and transgress. Come to the place where you are reminded of God's miraculous and amazing mercy to bring you to the land and to bring you into the land and give you entrance into the land where 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 you came to a place of blessing. And what does he say? Come to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Because Tom, what's going on there in Gilgal again? That you said? Uh syncretism and worship. They're, they're combining the worship of God with other Absolutely. They're, they're, they're worshiping Yahweh and worshiping all sorts of other gods. So come to Gilgal, the place of remembrance where you covenanted to remember and God called you to remember him and come and worship other gods. Multiply transgression. And then he says something really interesting in verse 4. He says to the people, bring your sacrifices every morning, which according to the law is not necessary. Not necessary to bring sacrifices every day. But he says, bring them every day. Go ahead, bring them. And then bring your tithes every three days. Again, wasn't required to bring sacrifice, bring, uh, bring the um, um, tithes every three days. Bring them, he says. Bring them every day. Sacrifices, tithes every three days. And then we're introduced to the beginning of verse 5, what's really going on. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leaven. Are they supposed to offer leaven sacrifices? They're supposed to be unleavened. And he says, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of what is leavened. That's an interesting, interesting term. And it's an incredible statement of condemnation. Going back to what, what Tom, you mentioned about the syncretistic worship. What's happening there? They're coming together to worship who? God. But they're also coming together to worship other gods, right? And he says, go ahead, bring the, what? Sacrifice of what? No? No, what? Sacrifice of praise or thanksgiving, right? That's really important. Bring the thanksgiving, which is supposed to be what? It's supposed to be a declaration of God's sovereign goodness to them. All-encompassing care. They were supposed to be coming and being thankful for how great and good God is so that they needed what? Nothing. Because that's what the law told them that he would be if they were faithful to him. They would give him everything that they need life. Right? And they're coming 
to Gilgal, they're going to pull the blank to Bethel, and they're offering sacrifice of thanksgiving with leavened bread. Now, what is the leaven typically in the scriptures presented as representing? Sin. So what he's saying here is, go ahead, bring the sacrifice of thanksgiving full of leavened bread. And by the way, historically, there were times, especially during this time, when priests were actually telling the people to bring leavened bread because they didn't like the taste of unleavened bread. And so they'd actually ask the people to bring leavened bread because it tasted better. And it does, doesn't it? Of course it does. What's God trying to get across to them? He's saying, he's mocking them with what he's doing. Every step of the way, he's mocking them. But he's saying, he's saying, you are coming supposedly to worship me with thanksgiving, but your very thanksgiving is full of what? Sin. Sin. Interesting. Can I fold it into today? Just a challenge to us. This morning, we sat here, stood here, and we sang three songs of thanksgiving. Three. Can I just ask a couple, couple quick questions? I'm just asking, not condemning, asking. What is your Thanksgiving leaven this morning? Did you come with leaven? What do I mean by that? What is your praise all about? What's my praise all about? Who or what do I praise? Who or what am I thankful for? I was thinking about it when we were singing this morning. It just clicked with me this morning a little bit while we were singing. If I may just work through this real quick. You walk up to the average Christian and you say, I'm just going to use you an example, Charles. Walk up to Charles and I say, hey, Charles, how was your week? The average Christian says, fine. Fine. Somebody may say, hey, hey, uh, uh, Rusty, how was your week? And Rusty says, it was really bad. Rough week, bad. Either way. But most people say, fine, good. If I was to probe and say to the average Christian, what made it so good? Work was easy. It'd be a number of things, right? But most times it'd be circumstances. If I said, so, Rusty, what made it so bad? Typically, circumstances, right? Situations. Story. My story of the week unfolding before me. Good or bad. And you know what's really interesting? I'm going to go to you on the good side. Okay? Because most times that's where we fall, right? Oh, it's good. Great. And then we, if we probe and we find out why, it's always the circumstances. Here's what's interesting. I am offering thankfulness about my circumstances. But where was God? No, no, I'm talking about in my thinking. Where was God? He's not there. At best, he's peripheral, right? And most times he's not even that, is he? Most times he's not even that. He aims to be front and center, doesn't he? All things are from him, through him, to him, to him be 
glory forever. Amen. And yet, so I, again, I'm just using this as an illustration. I didn't really think this through because it just clicked with me when we were singing this morning. But if I ask you, or if you ask me, how was my week? And I say, well, it was really good. It was fine. It was wonderful. It was exciting. Whatever, whatever I may say. If 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 it's not if I if it's not recognized from him through him to him to him be glory forever amen is not my thanksgiving by nature full of leaven isn't it it's full of leaven am I not a cow of Bashan at some level of course I am and the arrogance of thinking that God's gonna wink at that. The arrogance that I would actually think that that will mean nothing to God, that he'll pretend like I just took seven days of my 70 years and didn't acknowledge him. That somehow God would say, eh, not a big deal. When he says he's going to haul these people away with the trucks. And he did. When you say he's going to tear the walls down, he did. He swore based on his holiness he would do this. And we, in effect, are saying he's not holy when we assume he won't do anything. Do you realize that? We're, in effect, saying he's not holy. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, <laughs> or so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. In effect, what he's saying at the end of verse five is, "Be proud of what you've accomplished." <laughs> Isn't that what he's saying? Be proud of what you've done. Because that's what you love to do, O people of Israel. And from there, God goes into this repeated statement that is incredibly painful. And each statement is concluded the exact same way. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Cleanness of teeth meaning, of course, what? No food. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, and yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Interesting statement. I brought discipline on you. And you what? You didn't return. I'm going to wrap all these together before I, I talk about them. Verse 7. I also withheld the rain from you. When there was yet three months to harvest, crucial time, you can imagine. And then he says, I, I, I would send rain on one city. And by the way, the rain that came on one city does not mean that city was righteous. He was just demonstrating, teaching in the contrast. Does that make sense? I sent rain on one city. It would send no rain in another city. And one field would have rain. And the field on which it did not rain, everything would wither. Verse 8, so two or three cities would wander to another city. That's how desperate it was. 
They'd go to the city that got rain to drink water, but there would never be enough. Do you get that? Because they wouldn't be satisfied. There would never be enough. So everyone was thirsty. And then that horrifying statement again, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards. So even when things were growing, things were going south, right? Your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. So even what grew, the locusts ate. And yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Pretty serious stuff. I killed your young men with the sword. And carried away your horses, and I made a stench of the stench of your camp go it's so thick is the idea that it you couldn't get it away from you. It was everywhere. And the stench he's talking about is a stench of death. It was everywhere. If you've ever smelled death, it's disgusting. <clears throat> and yet you did not return to me. I overthrew some of you as when Sodom uh, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were and you are as a brand plucked out of the burning. What happens to a brand plucked out of the burning? It goes out. It gets cold. And yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. What's he trying to get across here? This is really important in, what is it? Um, one, two, three, four, five different statements. In five different statements, God says, I in light of what you were doing, verse 3 and 4, in light of the way you were bringing leavened bread, as it were, I disciplined you in a variety of ways. I disciplined you. And every time he says, yet you did not what? Return to me. The people in Amos's day, although it's not recorded, I guarantee you the people in Amos's day would, be, would respond this way. What are you talking about? What are you talking about we didn't return to you? What are you talking about we didn't return to God? Yes, we did. And well, they may even say that. But yes, we returned to God. And God says, no, you didn't. Why? What was their answer for the difficulties that came into their life? The answer was recorded very clearly in Scripture. It was warned about in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And then it was demonstrated throughout the storyline of Israel's history. This is what happened. The people would go through difficulties because they had forgotten their God. Because they were ushering in leaven into the worship, into the sacrifice, as it were. And then God would discipline them, at which point in time they would call out to God. And he would, what? He would restore them. He'd hear that and he'd restore. But what does Deuteronomy 8 warn them about? Be careful when I restore you and bless you that you don't what? Forget me. Why would they forget? Because they never returned. That's why they forget. Because if they really returned, they wouldn't forget. But they never really returned. The storyline of Israel's history is rather than returning, and by the way, returning in the scriptures is a returning to fellowship, a returning to intimacy, a returning repentantly for God's glory. 
Instead, in Israel's history, what did they do? They did a quasi-return or a faux return. What was the faux return? It was a return to activity. It was a return to doing things. It was a return back to works. It was a return back to sacrificing. What? Leaven offerings. It's a return back to leaven offerings. It's a return back to doing the religious rituals. It's a return back to doing the religious rites. It was not a return of the heart. It was a not a return that looked to God and, and actually from the heart discovered that God was the only thing that satisfied. That was not there. It was not even on the radar screen. And it was evident because quickly what would happen? They'd be doing the religious rituals, but they're looking for other things to satisfy. They're looking towards other things to satisfy. Or as Jeremiah describes it, real quickly they're grabbing shovels and they're doing what? Digging another cistern. Digging another cistern that can't hold any water. That's what they're doing. Just religious rituals. But they're not caught up with and glorying in and reveling in the God of grace. There's no heart change. There's no repentance leading to life. And that's what it means when he says you do not return. Now, I don't know about you, but that should challenge us. That better challenge us. If if it doesn't challenge us, we're really cold. That should amazingly challenge us to ask ourselves some really important questions. Such as, what really satisfies me? What actually makes a good week? To use our illustration. What defines a bad week? What defines a good day? What defines a good moment? What defines a good event? What's really important to me? In all these questions, it's really easy to give the right answers. But I'm not asking what should be, because Amos is challenging them with what is. Am I comfortable bringing week after week, for example, to church, bringing a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving? It's full of leaven. Am I okay with that? Where I'm moved by blank more than I'm moved by God, where I'm caught up by blank more than I'm caught up by my Redeemer, where I'm caught up more by the by the satisfaction of my lunch than I am by the one who is the bread of life. These are really important things. Because I want to remind you again that God does not change. Now, again, we remember that God's wrath was focused on Christ and the cross, right? But if he has truly saved us, what happens in our lives? Transformation by the Holy Spirit in our lives. Doesn't mean we become sinless. I want to clarify. Doesn't mean that. 
But does does our repentance come from the Holy Spirit at work changing us, transforming us? Or we fall into the trap of James, I think it's chapter 3, maybe it's chapter 4, maybe it's chapter 2, it's one of those three out of five. Um, where there's a whole lot of people who are sorrowful. That's all they are, is sorrowful. Yes, the worldly sorrow. At least to that. Or are we finding ourselves repenting by the Holy Spirit into life, into greater life? What a horrifying, repetitive statement five times, yet you did not return to me. And especially when we understand that really that should have been said. Thousands upon thousands of times. Verse 12. It's because of this, God says through Amos, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. What's he saying? This is not rocket science. What's he saying? You're dead. It's over. You are going to judgment. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Verse 13. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thoughts, or his thought, which is doing through Amos, right? Through the prophet Amos. This God who forms the mountain, forms mountains creates the wind, and the implication of those things are, if he can do that, he can bring what? Anything he wants. He can bring destruction. And declares to man what is his thought. He goes on in verse 13, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. Stop with those two. What do you think it means when he says, who makes the morning darkness. What do you think that means? Morning, morning and darkness don't go hand in glove, do they? What causes morning? M-O-R-N, not M-O-U-R-N. What causes morning? The sun comes up. So why does he say here in verse 13, who makes the morning darkness? What do you think that means? Reversing the norm, he has the power to do it. He has the power to do it, yes, but what else does it mean, do you think? Part judgment, because God's mercies are new every morning. God is the one who faithfully provides the sun to come up every morning. Yes, and so the darkness is referring to spiritual darkness and physical darkness. Spiritual darkness because it is now hopeless for them. But physical darkness because when the, the idea here is this. Morning supposed to, if, if you remember... We've seen it before in the scriptures and even in Amos, but we've seen it in other places as well. If you're a watchman, you want what? You want morning. Why? Because you can see. But if judgment is coming and you're a watchman and morning comes, what do you see? You see the Assyrians coming. Is that light or darkness? It's darkness. That's exactly what he's talking about here. At that section in verse 13, 
who makes the morning darkness. The judgment is coming, and when it comes, it is going to be as dark. When it's supposed to be light, it's going to be dark. And why is it going to be dark? Because spiritually, you are dark. That's the point. And then he goes on and treads on the heights of the earth. Interesting play on words here. Interesting play on words. Interesting idea here he's playing off of. What in Israel takes place on the heights? Idol worship. As he talks about himself who is bringing judgment, as he talks about himself who says he's bringing judgment at dark, or darkness judgment in the morning, he goes on and says, and treads on the heights of the earth. What's he talking about? He's going to destroy it because he alone is truly God. You bow down and you worship these other things, he says. You get caught up in these other things. You try to find your satisfaction in other things. It's called idolatry. Right? And we haven't left it, have we? Have we? And he says, you need to understand something. The God you say you serve, the God you say you love, you don't serve, you don't love, and the reason why you don't serve and you don't love is because you have all these other idolatrous practices going on in your life. He says, you need to understand who I am. That's what he's saying. I tread on all the high places. Are you kidding me? You think your 401k is going to help you? I'll crush it. You think your health is good to go? I'll take it away. You think your family's so wonderful and is your, your your satisfaction? I'll destroy it. You think your 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 fame, your security, your job, fill in the blank, is so wonderful? Your recreation, whatever it is, I tread on heights. Are you kidding me? It's, it, all, all that stuff is is merely a place I put my foot. Now, to get the picture, <laughs> to get the picture really clearly, <clears throat> y'all came through that door over there and you walked here. You walked right down that walkway and you came over. I'm just curious about something. How many of you really noticed all the stuff on the side? You're all looking right now to see if you even see what's there. You didn't even notice it. And that's not stuff you were walking on. Let's get more specific. How much did you pay attention to the, to the tiles? I think there are tiles here. There's tiles. How do you notice the tiles when you walk in? You didn't, did you? That's how insignificant the tiles are when you walked in. That's how insignificant all the things you cling to are to God. Those are just merely the place he puts the tread. Merely the place he puts the bottom of his feet. And you're so caught up in them. And I get so caught up in them. You're nothing. Just like the streets of gold that we think are so great. Yeah, exactly. It's just places he puts his feet. And we get so caught up in it. And yet, in the midst of being caught up, so caught up in places, he just puts his feet. 
we find ourselves carrying those things into worship. And we don't even realize it's just a bunch of leaven. And then he wraps up the entire chapter. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Now we know God of hosts means God of armies. We know that. Judgment is coming. But what's striking about the statement is he has to declare who he is that's speaking. That's what's most striking about the last line. Amos has to say to the people, that's who I'm talking about. That's who is being proclaimed. The Lord of hosts, the God of hosts, the Lord, the God of hosts is his the one, in other words, the idea is the one who you say you're worshiping, you've forgotten him. You've forgotten who he is. You've forgotten what he's all about. You've forgotten about what his holiness means. You've forgotten about what grace really is and what his purpose is. You've forgotten what mercy is and you've forgotten what his purpose is. Why his mercy is flowing new every morning. You've forgotten completely about it, Amos is saying to the people. You've forgotten all about it. And I need to remind you who this God is. That's how horrifying it was. But could I say this? That's what we've done too. You realize that? Here's the point for us today in Amos chapter 4. When we're being, if I use a term that Tom's Bible gives us, if you've never heard the term before, syncretistic. If we're being syncretistic, that is, we're trying to worship God, we're trying to cling to these other ones as well, we would never call them gods. We don't want to call them idols. But they are. We want to cling to these, but yet we want to worship God. We are forgetting what mercy is all about and why it is present with us. We've forgotten all about what grace is. And why it is present and flowing towards us. We have forgotten who God is that is flowing those towards us. We've forgotten it completely. And so we're left with only one thing. Religious ritual. And so we frantically work on our religious rituals. You know the evidence that we're, we're practicing our religious rituals? The evidence is so clear. The evidence is that we're not transformed. We're not transformed. We're not transfixed. With God. With Jesus. We're not enthralled. We can read a text of the Bible and not be Change, not be drawn to worship. But we can we can read we can read how, how well the, the stock market did, and we can be drawn to worship in a second. We're not drawn to worship when we lift up songs out of our bulletin and sing them. When we read ESPN, 
We're drawn to worship. When we, when we hear what God has to say in his word, we're not caught up in it. But when our boss calls us into the office and tells us how good of a job we've done, we're getting a raise, boo-boo, worship flows. Doesn't it? You know what happens? When the boss says, listen, i got to cut your pay, our, our thought is not, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's not what comes, right? Am I right? Sorry. Instead, all sorts of other thoughts come. You know why? The reason why is because we're syncretistic in our worship. Because we're caught up with other gods. That's why. And I just want to remind you, friends. <coughs> we do it unafraid. It's stunning. We do it without fear. We do it again and again and again and again. There's no fear. There's no remorse. There may be flippant, occasional flippant repentance, which isn't real repentance. But we don't find ourselves grieving too much. And we certainly don't find ourselves changed. We don't find ourselves more enthronged in love than our Redeemer. Now, I'm going to close on this. I have not read the quote yet in our bulletin. I just caught the first line, so I, hopefully it's a good one. What we find enjoyably, what we find enjoyable, we naturally find shareable. Why is this? Because joy shared is intensified. Shakespeare said this way, joy delights in joy. We love to see others discover joy in the things we have discovered joy in. And our joy is increased when we have praised that, I'm sorry, when we have praised what we have shared. We see this everywhere. When you hear a really funny joke, you call your best friend and laugh together. When you hear an incredible song, you post it to Facebook and let everyone hear it. When you take an, ador an adorable uh, picture of your child, you send it to your extended family to get their oohs and ahs. This is the way God created us because this is the way God himself is. The point of the, of the quote, I'm just reading for the first time, except for the first line. The point of the quote is, we don't find joy in Christ. We don't find joy in God. And that's syncretistic worship. And that's our problem. That's what Amos is addressing. We're enthralled by other things. To work off of this, we're enthralled by photos of our, of our grandchildren and our nieces and nephews. We're enthralled by a great song we've heard on the radio or on a CD. We're enthralled by a really funny joke, whatever the case may be. Or it's for some of you, a really bad joke. Um, but the point is, it's evidenced by what we what? What we share, what we do with it. What I'm enthralled with, I broadcast. What you're enthralled with, you broadcast. It's the way of things. It's the way God made us. <clears throat> Too much of that is leaven bread. That's what it is. 
eleven for that. And the idea that they're doing, well, let's let's bring let's bring uh, ties three days, and let's bring sacrifices every day. It is let's do more, let's do more, let's do more. Surely we'll appease him. Let's do more. That's not repentance. That's not returning. That's continuing to turn from him. We need to turn, return, and discover who God really is. And unlike Amos' day, we don't find ourselves in Israel's position by God's mercy. We don't find ourselves in Amos' day for the children of Israel, because the children of Israel are in a position of being told something that we've not been told. Prepare to meet your God. That's mercy. Because I deserve to hear, prepare to meet your God. And you do as well. We've not been told that. So let us together repent and believe. And drink deeply at the well. And keep on drinking. And eating the bread of life. And keep on eating the bread of life. And discover satisfaction like you could never imagine. Like the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Reading this text reminds me again and again that we need your mercy, we need your grace, but what we do all the time is we spend our time presuming and being flippant with the very thing that we need. Lord, we are sinful, wandering people. And we need you. We need you to open our eyes and help us to see. Because we really don't see you for who you are. And indeed, we can't, apart from your Spirit's work. So that's what we ask of you, that you will open our eyes to see our sin, to see your holiness, to see how we have deceived ourselves so long. Help us to respond to your mercy and grace. Help us to be responders to your love by your spirit. In your name I pray. Amen.